All right, so um, since we are starting a new book of the Bible, whether we can, like I said, whether we're going to continue is up in the air, but since we're coming to the first chapter of a new book, it is helpful to have a little bit of background about what's going on in 1 Samuel. So the, the historical background is this, that the end of the book of Judges is really the time period that 1 Samuel picks up with. So when you come to the end of Judges and you, then you read 1 Samuel chapter 1, you know exactly where you're at. And this time uh, at the end of Judges has not been a good one. In fact, the last few chapters of the book of Judges are basically a nosedive into apostasy and sin. You'll recall the stories of uh, Michael the Levite and his idol as showing the idolatry of, that Israel had fallen into. The horrific story of the Levite and that concubine that he chopped up into different pieces and sent a portion out to all the different tribes. And then the book of Judges ends with the infighting of the people of Israel as the tribe of Benjamin wars against the other tribes within Israel. And so the, the, the book ends, Judges ends, with that famous statement that in those days there was no king in Israel, and therefore everyone did what was right in his own eyes. That is the situation in Israel that Hannah and her family, which we're going to be introduced to here in this chapter, find themselves in. Anarchy, spiritual anarchy in the hearts of men is what rules the day in Israel at this time. Now I'm going to break up the exposition under five headings and I've alliterated them uh, along the lines of the letter F. So we're going to see the following points as we go through these 28 verses. And I've centered it around the person of Hannah since she is sort of the main human character in this story. We're going to see Hannah's family. Hannah's foes, Hannah's faith, Hannah's thought, parenthesis, heavenly, father, thank you, had a dry throat, and Hannah's fidelity. So that's Hannah's family, her foes, her faith, her father, and her fidelity. So let's dig in. In verse, we're going to start with Hannah's family. In verse 1, we are given some information about the origin of this family. We read, there was a certain man of Ramathim Zophim in the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, son of Joram, son of Elihu, son of Tohu, son of Zuth, and Ephrathite. Now, if that's all the information we had, we'd pretty much just know this guy's name and the name of his daddy, his granddaddy, and his great-granddaddy. But in 1 Chronicles chapter 6, we're actually given a little bit more information about this man, Elkanah. We are told that he is a Levite. And that specifically he belongs to the uh, clan of the Kohathites. So remember, you had the man Levi, for whom the tribe is named, and then he had three sons, Merari, Gershom, and Kohath. And each of those three sons from them spawned different clans. And we recall that when it comes to the Levites, they are the temple servants. right? They are those who have charge of the temple and the tabernacle. And, and they would rotate within their clans, and different people would come onto the tabernacle and do some service for a time, and then they would go away, and then another family from their clan would come and would serve within the temple. So we have a man, his name is Elkanah, and he is a Levite. And so we know right away that this family is familiar with tabernacle worship. They're at least involved in tabernacle worship. And we also read in 1 Chronicles 6 that the Kohathites were given some territory, literally it says word for word, in the hill country of Ephraim. The same phrase that is used here. You remember that the Levites did not get a portion. They didn't get their own specific tribe. They got different cities within the other tribes because the Lord God was their heritage. He was their inheritance. And so the Kohathites received some uh, territory in the hill country of Ephraim. And so it's no surprise that we find this man, Elkanah, who is of that tribe living in the hill country of Ephraim. That's the origin of this family. Next, we see something of the members of this family in verse 2. We've already been introduced to the man Elkanah, but then in verse 2 we read this. He had two wives. The name of the one, Hannah. The name of the other, Panina. Panina had children, but Hannah had no children. So we introduce to the reality, the sad reality, that Elkanah 
Though he is a Levite and he is a servant of the Lord, he has two wives. He's not a one-woman man. We're going to see a little bit more about the follies of polygamy as we go, but we just make that note now. He's got two wives, Hannah and Penina. We're also told that in this family there are children, and specifically, Penina is the one who has the children. There'll be much more to say about that. And it is also probably true, given what we see of Hannah's sacrifice and how extraordinary it is, that they had at least one, possibly more, servants. Now, we're not told that explicitly, but from what we can deduce from the text about their relative uh, value of possessions within their household, it was more than probable that they had a household servant. So what we have here is a traditional, what we might call anachronistically, upper middle class Jewish family around the turn of the second millennium B.C. That's their origin. That's the members. In verse 3, we're going to see something of their piety. We read in verse 3 that this man, and in parentheses his family, used to go up year by year from his city to worship and sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh. Now the author of 1 Samuel is technically unknown. It may well have been Samuel. At the very least, it was probably one of the prophets. So I'll just refer to it as the author of 1 Samuel as we go uh, along. But the author is careful here to tell us that this man and his family go up year by year. Year by year. Now why is that important? Because it's meant to indicate to us that this family is faithful. This is a continual practice of theirs, that they go up. And you say, well, that's not extraordinary, is it? Isn't that what all the Israelites are supposed to do? After all, the law of God prescribed that three times throughout the year, at minimum, the men were supposed to go and appear before the Lord at the tabernacle, at some of the different feasts. But remember what we said about the end of the book of Judges, this nation is in complete apostasy. They're in complete apostasy. And we read later on in 2 Kings that no uh, Passover, for example, had been kept since the earliest days of the Judges. So we've probably already had a few hundred years by the time we get to this point where the Passover hasn't even been celebrated. So it's not at all unreasonable to say that chances are most of the nation is not going up year by year to serve the Lord at the tabernacle because they're apostates. They're not doing what God has commanded them to do. So that makes this stand out all the more that what we have here is, comparatively speaking, probably a relatively pious Family, at least on the outside. They at least make an effort to go up. So Elkanah's faithfulness here is not just a culturally common thing. He is, in fact, worshiping the Lord. So we've seen their origin, their members, their piety, and then in verses 4 and through 5a, we will see something of the internal dynamics of Hannah's family. And we read here that on the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Penina, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave the double portion because he loved her. Now, we've already said that there are two wives in here, but now we are given some insight on the dynamics of this relationship. And we, it's made very clear here that even though there's two wives, there is not equitable treatment of both wives. You have a situation here where one woman is bearing the children and the other woman is getting all the love. Could that possibly be a recipe for disaster within the context of a family? Absolutely, it is going to be. And this shows us something of the folly of polygamy. It is simply not within God's intended realm that one man can be able to have multiple wives and to show them the same affection, love, and care that they are due. It will inevitably lead to strife, to heartache, to pain, and to bitterness. And so then this leads us to our second major point. We just discussed Hannah's family. The next one is Hannah's foes. Now, I was tempted to name this uh, Hannah's twofold adversity, but I went with foes for the letter, reason of the letter F. Uh, foes makes it sound like 
both of the people here are humans, but that's not necessarily the case. So twofold adversity is a little, little broader. So that's what we'll go with. Hannah's twofold adversity. And the whole thing is summed up for us very nicely in verse 6. We read right there that her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. So what are the two foes or the two adversities that Hannah faces? On the one hand, she's barren. That's one. And on the other hand, she has to deal with a woman named Panina. Let's talk about barrenness for just a moment. Chances are you've all heard, uh, whether it be from this text or from some of the other texts in Genesis where this topic comes up, that in this context, in this culture, barrenness was obviously a very especially reproachful thing. It was not something that someone desired. Women were seen as those who were bearing uh, sons, especially, for the man, and, and thus they were. But to then not be able to give a child to a man, especially a son, was considered a reproachful and a heinous thing. And very often in this culture, the fault was laid at the foot of the woman. And there would sort of be this usually unspoken, but maybe sometimes explicitly spoken, uh, assumption that if a God had withheld children from a woman, it must be because he doesn't like her very much, or it must be because she's done something wrong, that she's under the curse of God. And so not only was it just difficult to endure the fact that you couldn't have a child and experience the joys of it, but there was a cultural stigma that was especially intense in this time period that she would have to endure. Now, on the other hand, we do have to recognize that when it comes to barrenness, barrenness is a result of the fall. God's original intention was that the man and the woman would come together and that fruitfulness would result in the form of children. And so the fact that that doesn't happen in some specific cases can only be attributed to the reality of sin in this world. It does not mean, just because a woman is barren, that she is especially sinful, comparatively speaking, to someone else. But it is still, nevertheless, something that men and women have to endure as a result of the fall. It touches both the godly and the ungodly alike. We'll have a little bit more to say about her barrenness later. So that's the first adversity or foe that she faces. She's barren. The second is the fact that in her home there is a caustic rival. That word caustic just means acidic, uh, scathing, bitter, etc. Now, can you just imagine the... Uh, the household dinners, or at least the annual festival feasts at this table as they're all sitting around. And uh, you've got Penina there, and she's nursing a child. And one of her children that's maybe a little bit more grown up recognizes that this child's maybe about a year old or so. And so he starts off a conversation. Hey, Mommy, it's, it's about time for you to get pregnant again, isn't it? It's about time for another baby, right? And normally about this time, we, we get the news that, that you're uh, expecting another child. And Hannah goes, or sorry, Penina goes, Oh, yes, I, I'm sure that the Lord will provide us with another child here quite soon, looks my son. And the child looks at Hannah and he says, What about her? Why doesn't she have any children? Should, does God not like her? I thought children were a blessing from the Lord, Mommy. That's what, that's what Daddy tells us all the time, that children are a blessing from the Lord. But Miss Hannah, does she not want children? And then Penina turns and says, Oh, I'm sure that Hannah would love some children. You'd like some children, wouldn't you, Hannah? I'm sure that the time will come eventually for, for God to give her some. And there are a million ways that that kind of dynamic would play out in this kind of family. The constant poking and prodding at the fact that Hannah was barren. And so... Uh, Hannah's having to endure not only the fact of her barrenness, but also these attacks from her antagonistic rival. But I want you to notice that these attacks that are coming from Panina are not just simply your run-of-the-mill bickering between unregenerate men and women, but their text indicates that there is a specifically unique element to Hannah's uh, being provoked by Panina. You could read verse 7. So it went on year by year, that is the rivalry between them, as often as Hannah went up to the house of the Lord, 
Penina used to provoke her. Now that's very interesting. Because even though there were probably these uh, little battles that were going on throughout the year, there was one time of the year where the animosity was intensified, where it was heightened, where Penina would really go after Hannah. And it says that that time was when they used to go up to the temple or the tabernacle. Now, why might that be the case? Why would Penina's animosity intensify at that point in time specifically? Because Hannah's a regenerate person. And when is her regeneracy, her godliness, and her piety most fully on display when she goes up to worship at the house of the Lord? And so what we have here is the fact that we're not just dealing with two unregenerate women. We are dealing with women who have two different principles within them. One is of the seed of the godly. The other is of the seed of the wicked. And so when Penina sees Hannah's piety coming out in its fullness, it's not just a base uh, woman versus woman reaction that comes out of her. It is specifically a hatred of that piety that then provokes Penina to stick the finger in even harder. In other words, what we have here is a further outworking of the, uh, the dichotomy or the antithesis that God put in place in Genesis 3 between the offspring of the woman and the offspring of Satan. And we've already seen this in the scripture several times. We've seen Cain versus Abel, Jacob versus Esau, and we're going to see pretty soon David versus Saul. Hannah is not just a regular old suffering woman. She is suffering under the specific cosmic battle between Satan and the seed of the woman who will culminate in Christ. She's suffering as a godly woman. So we see those realities in her life. And then next we see in verse 7b the debilitating effects of this warfare or these foes that she's having to deal with. Now it shouldn't be hard to put ourselves in her shoes. We read, therefore Hannah wept and would not eat. Now, like I've said, she's having to deal with real pain. There is an objectively real pain that should naturally come from barrenness, but it's being exacerbated by Penina. It's almost like Hannah just has an open sore right across her midsection, and Penina's dipping her finger in vinegar and just shoving it right in there, poking it over and over and over again. And you can just imagine how this would debilitate Hannah. And this is not just a short-term debilitation. You know, we get, a, we get a flat tire or something, and yeah, we're frustrated, but we get over it in a relatively short period of time. This is long-term pain. This is something that happens year by year, and a lot of you have experienced this kind of thing in your own life. It's a lot harder to put up with and to deal with and to be faithful to God under the midst of extenuating pain that, it, that stretches out over months and even years. And that's what she's dealing with. And we read here that she wept. She wept. Now, somebody might be tempted to say, well, she should just buck up her faith a little bit. God is sovereign. She should know that. God is the one who closes and opens the womb. And so the fact that Hannah's not bearing children is obviously the decision of God. And so therefore, if you have real faith in that kind of situation, you're going to simply say, well, I trust in God and I'm not ever going to experience any sorrow. But that's not how God intends his people to function. There is real sorrow here, and it's totally normal. She's not an idolater, but she is truly grieving in a godly fashion. And she's debilitated. And then next we see a naive husband in verse 8. We read, Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? And why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? And am I not more to you than ten sons? Now that may win the award for the worst husband response ever. I mean... To come up with an analogy to what that's like, I mean, you can imagine a woman who has just lost a child. And uh, Husbands, put yourself in this situation. How many of you would have the gall to go up to your wife after she's grieving the loss of her child and say, Hey, what, come on, cheer up. you still got me, right? 
you've got me, or, or pointing to any of the other children and saying, look, you've got all these other kids. Why are you so upset about this one that you lost? That is possibly the worst thing that you could do in this situation. And that's exactly what Elkanah does to his wife. He does not enter into her pain. He's not sympathetic. And so now Hannah is left in the position, not only does she have to deal with the barrenness and with the provoking of Panina, but she has no support from her husband even. So she is all alone, humanly speaking, in this situation. But, like many of the godly saints that we know, it is exactly when they find themselves in these positions, when they have no hope in other men, no hope in the arm of the flesh, that her godly impulse kicks in. And so we come to the third major heading, that is Hannah's faith. Hannah's faith. This will cover verses 9 to 18. The first thing we see under Hannah's faith is her inclination. In verses 9 to 10, we read, After they had eaten and drunk at Shiloh, Hannah rose. She rose. Now, her family has specifically come. It has sacrificed. It has carried out the duties that God has prescribed here. But for Hannah, she's carrying grief. And so she's not merely content to come, as probably many of the Israelites were, and simply carry out the letter of the law just for the sake of doing it. She has real burdens, real pain that she's suffering under. And so she needs something more. And she knows that she's very close to the, fact, to, to the, to the one place that she can take herself where she can meet with a God whose back is strong enough, who has a set of shoulders broad enough, and who himself forms a refuge so secure that she can take her burdens there and she can place them at the feet of God. Because right now, God has said that his name and his place dwells in that one tent over there. And so what does she do? She rises and she goes where? To the entrance of the tabernacle, right where God's presence is to dwell. Now, we also recognize that at this point in redemptive history, she can't get to the, what we might call the, the ultimate place where God's presence dwells in the Holy of Holies. She's not the high priest. It's not the Day of Atonement. So she can't go into the Ark of the Covenant. She can't go in behind the veil. She is stuck standing at the entrance. But that's okay for her. It's, it reminds me of the Syrophoenician woman who comes up to Christ, and, and she just wants to be near him, and Christ tests her a little bit, right? And he says, uh, it's, it's not right for me to give the food of the children to the dogs, speaking of the fact that he had come to minister first to the Israelites and not to this Gentile woman. And what's her response? Yes, Lord, but even the children, even the dogs, excuse me, get to eat of the crumbs. If she can just be near to Christ, she's satisfied. And it's the same thing with Hannah. All she needs is to be near to her God. She stays at the entrance and she pours her heart out there. And for her, that is sufficient. She's near to her God. So then we see her inclination is to go to God. And then we see her piety continuing in her prayer. And what is her, how does her prayer start here? In verse uh, 11, she says, O Lord of hosts. Now most of us would just flip right through that title. But you may not be aware that this is the first time that anybody has ever in the Bible taken that title on their lips. We've never read anybody so far say, O Lord of hosts. We read it in verse 3 here of this chapter, but it was just the narrator using that term. We've never actually seen a character in the Bible refer to God as the God of hosts. Now why is that significant? Because what does the title God of hosts imply? That God is seated on his throne and he is so exalted that he is even above the highest of the heavenly beings. He has authority and rule over them. He's the Lord of all the hosts of heaven. And so the fact that God is addressed by Hannah with this title, Lord of hosts, means that Hannah is appealing to the attribute of God that she needs most right now. And that's power and authority. She is appealing to the power of God. And so she chooses a title that appropriately corresponds to that. 
By the way, we should consider that in our prayers and how we address the Lord. So she needs power, and she chooses to call him the God of hosts. And then she goes on to make her vow in this prayer. And we read, If you will indeed look upon the affliction of your servant, and remember me, and not forget me, but will give your servant a son, then I will lend or give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor shall touch his head. This is not, as some people might be tempted to read it, a pagan prayer. You know how the pagan operates when, uh, when they get themselves in trouble from their own sin. They start crying out to God, Oh God, if you'll just get me out of this situation, if you just do this one thing for me, you know, I'll never lie again, I'll never steal, I'll never do whatever it is I did in the first place that was sinful. That's not what this is. She's not coming to God and saying, Oh God, you know, fix my situation because I've sinned and I need you to, to, sort of, to, to mop the whole thing up. This is a specific prayer of faith that is based inherently upon the Word of God. Now, a couple of ways that we know that. First, inherent in her prayer is the presupposition that the one to whom she is praying is sufficient and able to actually do the thing that she is praying for. She needs power. If the Lord is going to open her womb, that is an exercise of miraculous divine power. That's the only way that that's happening. The arm of the flesh will be insufficient for this. And so the fact that she goes to this God and prays in accordance with faith, knowing that He is able, tells us that she is praying from a heart of regeneration, a heart of a a new principle that loves the Lord. But secondly, she is also probably reflecting upon what she knows of the Scriptures. Because even though she may not have a personal copy at home, they didn't have books in this time period, she's heard the scriptures read undoubtedly many times. And she's heard of these other women in the past, in past generations, in God's dealings with his people, who were in a similar situation. She's heard of women like Sarah and Rebecca. And she's heard of Manoah's wife probably recently. And of Rachel as well. And in those situations, when it seemed the most helpless, God acted in power and he vindicated his title, Lord of Hosts. And so the woman who has heard these stories in her mind has discerned that based upon what God's Word said, God is therefore able to do these things. And so I will then apply those texts to my situation, and I will approach this same God and appeal to those same attributes in my supplication and in my prayer. Now notice, she has no covenant promise. Abraham had a covenant promise that he would have an offspring, right? God came and covenanted with him. I will surely open the womb of your wife and give you a child. Mm -hmm. Hannah does not have that. God has not come down and given her a specific promise. But that for her was no hindrance to looking back in the word of God and still praying on the basis of faith for her specific situation. And that's something that we need to take into account. Because God has not come to any one of us as an individual and given us a covenant promise of what He will do in our specific lives and in any of the trials that we face. And yet that should be no hindrance to us to appealing to this same God who is able when we feel the need for His power. So she prays on the basis of the Word of God. Next we see that her vow is in fact explicitly based on the Word of God in the specific content of what she vows. She says specifically at the end of her prayer, If you'll give me this child, no razor shall touch his head. Most of you know that's the language of the Nazarite vow, right? So that's based on Numbers chapter 6. A Nazarite, real briefly, was someone who had consecrated themselves especially unto the Lord for a specific time period. Nazarites would shave their head, they would consume no strong drink, and they would touch no unclean thing. They were to be wholly dedicated to the Lord over and above what he already required of them for a specific period of time. Now, why does Hannah choose this vow of all things when she prays unto the Lord? Well, 
Because she knows that if the Lord answers her prayer and gives her a child, that it will have indeed been God's own power that has worked, and it will be God who has, as she says here, lent the child to her. It will be God's gift to her. And so if God is going to act and give her something, she wants to make sure that there will be some means of setting apart the gift that God has given her visually or externally so that everyone knows that this child was a gift from the Lord and therefore he is the Lord's. He is dedicated to the Lord. And so she goes back into the scriptures and she finds a specific uh, uh, text from the Word of God that gives her exactly what she's looking for, a way to set something apart unto the Lord. God had already put that right there in His Word. And so she just goes back into the Word, finds the thing that God Himself has prescribed, and prays in accordance therewith. But she goes even farther. Because the Nazarite vow, it was really up to the person taking the vow how long they wanted to serve it. But she says that her child will serve his whole life there. She is totally dedicating him to the Lord. So then, this entire prayer is built upon the theology of the Word of God. It is a prayer of piety. It is totally based upon God's revealed Word. She's discerned God's attributes. She's applied them to her situation. She has recognized that all things come from God. And she has found in God's Word a prescribed means of expressing that very reality. So we're seeing her, her piety on display here. Next, we see her piety specifically vindicated. And in this section of the text, this is where, and most of you are very familiar with this, as she's praying, right, she's speaking in her heart, and her lips are moving, but no sound is coming out. And so what happens with Eli? He, uh, he mistakes her for a drunk, and he specifically rebukes her. So Hannah's piety here is being, at least externally, rebuked by the voice of Eli. And the fact that Eli would do this is a sad commentary on the spiritual state of Israel at this time. Because who is Israel? Uh, who is Eli? He's the one who's in charge of God's worship at the tabernacle. And what do we already know from chapter 2? He's got sons sleeping with prostitutes at the entrance of this tabernacle and stealing the sacrifices of the Lord. Has he disciplined them? Has he kicked them out? Has he brought them to be executed by the leaders? No, he has not. He has allowed them to prostitute and profane God's sanctuary. But the second he thinks that a woman is uh, potentially drunk in front of the tabernacle. He's got eyes to see that. He's real quick in there with the words, Stop this, you drunken woman. And so we have here a blind leader of the blind. This is God's judgment, further evidence of God's judgment upon Israel at this time. We also notice that the fact that Eli would, would just kind of from a distance look and see that and immediately assume that she was drunk probably means that this is not the first time this happened for Eli. That in fact the Israelites would typically come up and as they would uh, go about their feast, they would get drunk and then they would stumble over to the tabernacle. And so even though they had come up to formally offer some kind of external worship, there was no clearly spiritual nature to it. There was no heart-rending that was going on in Israel's worship at the time. Now the author wants us to see that so that we can contrast that specifically with Hannah. And notice... It's very interesting. I think most people miss this, but, uh, but let's look at that text there in verse uh, 15. Notice what the author does here in Hannah's response. Hannah says, No, my Lord, I am a woman troubled in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I've been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Now, the original audience probably would have caught immediately the close proximity of the phrases strong drink and pouring out. Why? Because in Numbers chapter 28, in verses 7 through 8 in God's law, it specifically said that the people were to come to the Lord with a drink offering. 
And it uses the language of strong drink. It uses that term. You're to come and bring strong drink and pour it out before the Lord. And what was that drink offering meant to symbolize? The pouring out of one's life unto God. So here you have a situation in Israel where people are coming. They're formally pouring out their drink offerings before the Lord but probably not as much as they should so that they have enough to get drunk off of later. But they're pouring out something formally before the Lord, but they're not pouring out the thing that the offering was meant to symbolize. They're not pouring out their hearts. They're not worshiping the Lord. Now, we've had so far no mention in this text of Hannah pouring out a drink offering, but she is pouring out something. She's pouring out her heart and her soul unto the Lord here. In other words, the, the author has written this narrative in order to show us that Hannah is the essence and the embodiment of a true worshiper of Yahweh. Right. She is the one who is uh, fulfilling the words that we read later on in the prophets. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. And the sacrifices of the Lord are a broken and a contrite heart. She's pouring out the thing that is truly pleasing in the eyes of the Lord. And so she serves here as a rebuke to unbelieving Israel. Her piety is what the Lord is seeking here. And the author vindicates her as the one who is worshiping God in spirit and in truth. And Eli, even finally at the end of this, confirms that in verse 17. Once he understands what's happening, he says, Go in peace, and the God of Israel grant the petition that you have made to him. So her piety is vindicated. And then in verse 18, we see that Hannah receives consolation. In verse 18b, we read, Then the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. That's a woman who's been grieving. And she's been grieving before the Lord. And the Lord is many things to His people. Right? He is our Savior. He's our Redeemer. He's our Shepherd. He's our Lord. He's our Judge. He's our Master. But probably one of the things that the Lord is to His people that is most cherished by His saints is the fact that He is Comforter. And that He is the God of all comfort. And to be honest, I, I don't even think I need to preach this to many of you because many of you have experienced in your own lives, in your own prayer places, what it is like to take a concern to the Lord, to actually have the doorway into His heavenly presence open, to pour yourself out before the Lord, and then to receive comfort that you simply can't put into words. Have you ever tried to express to an unregenerate family member or a friend or even to a saint of God what it has been like when the Lord has really met you in the prayer place before. And as you struggle to find words to patch together to try and encompass this experience, you feel like an idiot. Yeah. Because you, they just can't do it. Because this is a comfort that goes beyond what human words can express. Right. It is a divine comfort. And so Hannah here is a recipient of the fact that God is the God of comfort. Yeah. Now notice here, she gets up and she goes away and her face is, is no longer sad. She has received no promise from God here. God has not come down and said, Oh yes, I'm going to grant the petition of your heart here. She has no more assurance that her barrenness is going to change when she gets up from the prayer place than she did when she went into it grieving. God has given her nothing yet. But simply by being in the presence of her God in His tabernacle, she's comforted. She's comforted. That's all it takes. And many of you saints know that. You simply come to the Lord, you pour yourself out, you haven't even received the things that you were asking for, but you walk away from that place, a renewed man or a woman, knowing that God is able and that He is for you. So that's the third major heading, her faith. The fourth is her father, parentheses heavenly in there. We see this in verses 19 through 20. 
So far in the narrative, we have not actually seen God do anything. We've read about him, he's been mentioned, other people have talked about him, but God himself has not actually acted in any way that is specifically mentioned here. But now we read in verse 19, They rose early in the morning and worshipped before the Lord. They went back to their house at Ramah, and Elkanah knew Hannah his wife, and here we read, And the Lord remembered her, and in due time Hannah conceived. Now I want you to take note of that word remember there. It's a very important term. It's not just the author reaching for some human word to describe what God's doing. It is that. But it's used as much more than that in Scripture. The term remember is virtually always used in the context of covenant. It is a covenantal remembrance. When God has made a specific promise to someone and entered into covenant, and then later on, when the terms of the covenant have not yet been fulfilled, you'll often find that God remembers that which He had said in the establishment of the covenant. You think of, for example, uh, Genesis chapter 8. God in Genesis 6 has said, I'm going to make a covenant with you, Noah, and uh, therefore I will put your, uh, uh, your uh, family into the ark and you will be safe from the flood. And then in Genesis 8.1 we read, And God remembered Noah, and therefore the waters rescinded and they were able to walk out onto dry land. Or in Exodus chapter 2, we referenced it yesterday in the men's group discussion. We read of the fact that God hears the groanings of the Israelites and it says He remembered His covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So this is a covenantal remembering. Now, <clears throat> we must recognize that God only remembers those who are His. And as we've said before, Hannah does not have a specific covenant from God, does she? There's been no covenant made with Hannah, and yet God remembers her. So how can that be the case? Well, it can be the case because of this. Though a specific covenant was not made with the individual woman, Hannah, Back in Genesis chapter 3, the promise of a specific covenant that would come was made. That all those who would be found in this covenant would belong to Yahweh and that therefore the ear of Yahweh would be open specifically unto that people. And so the reason that God remembers Hannah in this way is because she is a member of what will be enacted in the blood of Christ as the new covenant. And therefore she has access to the throne of grace. She has access to God. God does not remember in this way the unregenerate man or woman. And so even though a specific covenant hasn't been made with Hannah, she is a part of the eternal covenant that God made with his son. And therefore, she has access to the remembering ear of God. And again, that's important for us because you don't need God to make a specific covenant with you individually. All you need is for him to make a covenant with his son and then you to be found in him. Right. And that's, that's sufficient. Yeah. That's what our God has done for us. We have a covenant keeping and a covenant remembering God. God will remember us by virtue of the worth of his son. Next, we see covenant action. You'll find in Scripture that God's remembering always leads to God's acting. Every single time. In verse 20, he opens the womb that was shut. He remembered Hannah, and then therefore he acted in power and did only something that only God could do. He opens a barren womb. And in doing so, this is really remarkable, he does two things. On the one hand, he vindicates his servant Hannah and her piety. He remembers her and acts on her behalf, and she is vindicated as being a child of God. But on the other hand, in this act of opening her womb, 
God has silenced who in this narrative is the representative of the seed and the voice of the serpent. Because remember, Penina's leverage over Hannah is entirely predicated on the fact that Hannah cannot have children. And that's exactly the thing that she pokes at over and over. And so now the fact that God has opened Hannah's womb has now uh, silenced Penina because she can no longer gloat over Hannah. She can no longer take carnal joy in seeing Hannah suffer. And if I may use a little bit of a sanctified speculation here, I can't help but imagine that Penina lost a whole lot of joy in this episode. And specifically, she probably lost a whole lot of joy in her children. Because think about Hannah's, Penina's mindset here. If all of her joy over her rival is found in the fact that she has these children and Hannah does not, then part of the value of her children is found in the fact that they're a means to get her to make fun of the other woman. So when that, when that cog is pulled out of her machine, now she looks at her children and they're no longer a unique source of gloating for her. And so can you imagine how in her eyes her children almost become a little bit bitter to her? I'm not saying she didn't love them anymore. But when we look at the things that God has given us in an unregenerate fashion, and we're not thankful for them, as soon as God takes anything that we're finding carnal joy in them away from us, we'll no longer appreciate the things that God has given us. And I think Penina probably experienced a lot of that. So Hannah is allowed, as it were, in this case, she's vindicated, and she's allowed to rejoice over her foes. Notice, very interestingly, uh, in her prayer... In, in chapter 2 and verse 1, notice what she says in her prayer. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. See, the fact that God had worked this powerful thing for her and had, had silenced the mouth of her foe was a chance for her to exult, not carnally over the fact that she was somehow superior to this woman, but in the fact that God himself had acted on her behalf. And this satanic conflict, as we know, is nothing but a foreshadowing of the ultimate conflict that will, uh, that will be terminated in the Lord's crushing the head of the serpent. And yet the Lord here allows one of his servants to experience in time just a little foretaste of the ultimate vindication of the saints over their enemies. Because we know that Christ will ultimately be, be victorious over the serpent. So that's what we see here in Hannah's father. Hannah's heavenly father acts... He vindicates his own name, he vindicates Hannah, and he silences the seed of the serpent. And then we come to the fifth point of exposition, and the final one, Hannah's fidelity in verses 21 through 28. I won't read this whole thing at once, but we know that Hannah has vowed a vow to the Lord. Now God has acted, and so since God has acted and she has vowed, the time has come for her to fulfill her vow. He must be given, the child, Samuel, must be given to the Lord all the days of his life. Now, most parents, let's be honest, would start backtracking at this point. Because she's been weaning this child for, in this culture, all the way up to three years. Anywhere from one to three years, she's been weaning this child. She's forming a bond with him. Most of you are sitting there with some kind of child in your hands. Now, can you imagine that you've formed a bond with this one to two-year-old, and the time starts to come where I'm supposed to take him somewhere three or four hours away from my home, drop him in a tent, go back. I have no means of communication with him. I'm going to trust somebody else to raise the child. Might you in your mind be tempted to backtrack off that vow a little bit? The vow may have seemed like a good idea when you were real desperate and you was like, I got nothing else to lose because I don't have a child. But now that God's delivered the child, now's when the rubber really meets the road. Will Hannah be faithful to her vow? And she will, because she says very emphatically, I will bring him. She is determined to keep her word. But notice 
that in her determination, in her determination to fulfill her vow to the Lord and to bring the child to his tabernacle, she actually has an eschatological joy that is present within her words. She says, I will bring him to the Lord so that he may dwell in his presence forever. Now people read over that verse very quickly. But she's just expressed the entire theology of the Bible in one phrase. She is rejoicing that her child Samuel is going to go and dwell in this little tent for his entire life. He's going to be raised by somebody else. Now why would she rejoice in that? Why would a parent find any comfort in something that sounds on the surface so absurd? Because that place is where God is. That is the essence of man's existence. Our highest and greatest good is to dwell where the Lord dwells. What's the most famous psalm outside of the, the room, outside of the walls of Christianity? Psalm 23, right? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. That's pretty much all that psalm that most people know, all the way up to the point about he leads me beside still waters. But that's not the climax of the psalm. That is only That truth that is established there, that the Lord shepherds his people, is only meant to lead us to the final verse, which is, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And we read elsewhere in the psalm that at your right hand there are pleasures forevermore. So when she says that he will dwell there forever, she is saying that she desires this above all else for her son. She wants him to be where God is. She says, I don't care if he's comfortable. I don't care if he's with me. I don't care if he's rich. I don't care what his lot is in this life. Is he with God? If so, then it's enough. It is sufficient for me. And that ought to be our attitude with our children. No, you're not going to be dropping your children off at some tent. And if anybody down the road, about a mile down there, tells you that that's what you need to do with your children, to drop them in some tent somewhere, then you resist that. We don't live in this time period anymore. But it should still be our attitude that we want our children to be dedicated unto the Lord. So then, she, she is uh, determined to do so. And then the time actually comes. And she brings the child after she's weaned him. And she, she approaches unto the tabernacle of the Lord. And she brings with her some things. She brings a bull. She brings flour. And she brings wine. Now, why does she bring those specific items? Because she's made a vow to the Lord. And you may recall that in Leviticus chapters 3 and 7, we have a discussion there of the vow offerings, a subset of the free will offerings. The idea there was that if you vowed a vow to the Lord, when the time came for you to make good on it, you were to uh, formally symbolize the fact that you were fulfilling your vow by bringing a specific offering to the Lord. Now, what you were to bring is not actually specified uh, as a divine commandment. The, the text in Leviticus just goes through and says, if you decide to bring this kind of animal, or if you decide to bring this, here's what you'll do with it. But the specific commands of what you were to bring were not given. So it was really up to the Lord, or to the individual. That's why it's called a free will offering. So there's no prescribed amount, but what Hannah brings here is really an, an ex exorbitant amount of stuff. Now some of the translations, there's, there's ambiguity in the Hebrew as to whether she brings a three-year-old bull or three bulls. Either way, she brings a lot. Now why does she bring a lot? Because this is a woman who has been grieving for years. She's been suffering under long-term sorrow, like we said earlier. And now the Lord has acted in power. And it has filled her heart with such joy that she says, I must bring a sacrifice that externally communicates the realities going on in my heart. I must give him the fullness of what I can. Not just the bare minimum that I might get away with. She brings exceedingly and abundantly more than she is required to. But notice also, remember earlier we talked about the fact that Hannah was, rather than pouring out a drink offering, she was pouring out her soul before the Lord, right? Well, remember, the, the drink offerings and the ceremonial law were commanded by the Lord. You were supposed to do them. 
And so what we have here is her actually fulfilling the ceremonial law of what she was supposed to do in this situation, which shows us what? That Hannah has her priorities in order. Her first order of business is that she would fulfill the internal aspects of the law, that she would truly worship God and pour her heart out. But in so doing, she doesn't then turn around and say, and therefore I don't have to do the ceremonial aspects of the law. She does both, but she does them in their proper order, and she does them with the proper motivations. We're reminded of Christ's words when he's speaking of the Pharisees, and he, they're obsessed with washing the cups and with, with fulfilling all the little details that they've added to the ceremonial law, but they've neglected the weightier matters. And what does Christ say? You fools, you hypocrites. These also, the ceremonial laws, you ought to have done but without neglecting the weightier matters of the law. It's both. God desires that all aspects of his law be obeyed. And so Hannah is being vindicated before our eyes as a person who lives up to the fullness of what God desires in his worship. She worships first and foremost in her heart, but she doesn't neglect everything else that the Lord has said to do. She fulfills, as Psalm 65 says, her vows sincere unto the Lord. So she's fulfilled her vow, she's dedicated Samuel, and then we read here at the very end of our text, and he, referring to the child, worshipped the Lord. Now this is what it's all been leading up to. This is what all the pain and all the sorrow and all of the endurance and all the patience and all the piety and all this, the anguish and the conflict in her life has been leading up to. It's not just enough that she's got the child. That's wonderful. But her desire is that the child not only dwell with God, but worship God from his heart. And here we have the statement that that's exactly what happened. The child did worship. This is what every parent should long for who is a godly parent. Amen. Not that my children would show up to church on Sunday. Yes, of course we want that. But I want them to worship when he's here. And so all of Hannah's struggle... All of her pain has been vindicated right here in these words. Her son that she labored for worships the Lord. So thus far the exposition. Now, what doctrine can we pull out of this text? Well, there's probably a couple, but I've zeroed in on one, and it's this. This text, if nothing else, teaches us that God remembers even his most obscure servants who labor diligently to seek him, and who faithfully steward that which he has entrusted to them. Say that again. God remembers even his most obscure servants who diligently seek him and who faithfully steward that which he has entrusted to them. Now how do we see that in this text? Who is more obscure than Hannah? You're talking about a woman who's one of two wives in a single family that's not exactly the aristocracy of Israel, who's living on the side of a hill in the country of what is considered the armpit of the Middle East between the major trade empires of the time. Nobody in the world at this time gives a flip who Hannah is. Nobody knows who she is. Nobody cares. Right? She's as obscure as can be. And yet, despite that obscurity, she sought the Lord diligently for years. Her heart was such that she knew that it doesn't matter what men see in me. It doesn't matter if anybody knows my name after I'm dead. There is one who does know me because I am bought by the blood of the one to whom I am looking in faith. She recognizes that. And so she labors diligently and she endures in prayer for years. Now how many of us, how many of us give up on a prayer after a couple of days? If it's a real big situation in your life, we're talking like the death of a loved one or 
some kind of financial hardship, boy, you, you might be uh, extraordinary if you labored in prayer for a couple months over a specific prayer request. Most of us don't do it. This woman labored for years, suffering hardship and persecution and pain, and she didn't give up, and therefore God remembered her for it. Can you imagine how many times she got up from the prayer place and thought, I was here last week, I was here the week before, I was here the week before that, I was here the week before that, and still no child. And yet, when the next opportunity came for her to go up to the tabernacle and to pray, she's found there again, and again, and again, and again. And so she's remembered. But then when she, gets, when she actually gets her request, when God acts in power, most of us would be tempted to say, wow, I've labored so long in prayer, God's finally given me this thing, that's great, now it's mine to use as I will. Not so Hannah. She faithfully stewards that which God has given her. All she really has the opportunity to do with this child is put some milk in his stomach for a year or two max and then ship him off to somebody else. And yet that was okay with her. That was sufficient. And God did great things, which we'll talk about a little bit more, with uh, with that which Hannah faithfully stewarded. And so can you imagine, she's in, she, she gets into glory, and can any woman ever more accurately or more appropriately receive the words, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you in charge of much. We have all the confidence in the world that because she stewarded that which God gave her, she was met with those words. So that's the doctrine. God remembers those who diligently seek Him and who... Faithfully steward that which he has entrusted to him. Well, then the final thing for the sermon, and we're doing good on time, that's good, is the application. I have two points of application from this. First, wage war on spiritual laziness. Now, given what we just said that the doctrine of this text was, if this text teaches that God remembers the diligent, should we not be preeminently concerned to war against that which is the enemy of spiritual diligence? And that is spiritual laziness. We should. Now imagine for a moment if Hannah's endurance rose no higher than most Christians, right? Like we just said. She would have prayed a few times and then when it wasn't answered in the predetermined time frame that she had set for when God should have acted, you would have slowly seen her stop praying. She would have tapered off. Her heart would have become callous toward God, and she would wonder why she's bearing no fruit in her spiritual life. And we, as we watch her go up to the tabernacle year after year, all of a sudden she wouldn't be slipping away to be alone with her God anymore because God hadn't answered the prayer in her time period. And she would say, well, if God's not going to act. I guess I'm just going to sit back and say, this is the will of the Lord. See, but she doesn't do that. She, stop, she doesn't stop pouring herself out as a drink offering to the Lord. She's not a defeatist. She doesn't make excuses. She continues to persevere. She has waged war on the spiritual laziness that was inherent in her. You're no different from her. You have the same spirit that she does. She came from the same stock of Adam that you did. She experienced the same temptations to spiritual laziness that you do. You're no different from her in that sense. And yet she persevered because she was incredibly uh, successful on her own in her own terms. No. Because she had the Lord and she was faithful to the Lord and the Lord provided grace and she walked in that grace and made use of what God had given her. So for us, I want you to notice those moments. And you all know what I'm about to say. When the Spirit convicts you that you ought to be with the Lord, that you ought to be giving yourself unto the Lord. That could be from prayer to the reading of the Word to something to do with it. It doesn't matter. When you know that you're supposed to be giving yourself to the Lord, what very often comes into your mind? In the back of your mind, enter in those thoughts of, 
I've got this to do, I've got this to do, I've got this to do, and I've got this to do, and I don't have time right now to meet with the Lord. That is most often the first thought that comes into our mind. Now, that is the essence of spiritual warfare, of the time when spiritual warfare is needed the very most. It's when those little thoughts enter your mind that you're just going to take a little step back off of your diligence unto the Lord. You see, spiritual laziness does not mean that we're not doing anything at all. In fact, usually we're never more lazy in God's eyes than when we're constantly doing something. So you don't analyze this by asking, am I always busy? Paul said this many times. You analyze this by looking at yourself and asking, am I doing what the Lord has called me to do in my busyness? Yes, we're going to be busy people in this life. But there's a difference between being busy in the pursuits of our own imaginations and being busy in the pursuit of what God has given us to do. So recognize those moments. The second one of those little moments enters into your mind that I'm just going to slack back and I'm not going to go and I'm going to turn my attention and do something else. That's when you've got to turn and fight. That's when you've got to actually take the time and the effort to push in the opposite direction and say, no, I'm not going to give in to this laziness temptation. I'm in fact going to turn and give myself to the Lord. Recognize those moments. Don't let them pass over. Don't let them pass over at all because those are the pinnacle of spiritual warfare. Most of us don't need to be worried as much about the huge temptations to some uh, licentious sin that's going to be uh, get us kicked out of the congregation. We do. But for most of us, the fight hinges on the daily battles that we lose because we don't think they're really that big of a daily battle. We don't have the proper perspective on these things. You lose the battle when you step back from God in the little things far earlier than you lose the battle when you give in to some great sin. Warfare is more easily won when the enemy is allowed to get even his foot in the castle than it is when you try to fight him after he's already well inside. So be diligent. Go on the offensive for a change. Stop being a passive Christian in your spiritual warfare. Stop letting the, the temptations of your flesh and of the evil one just waft over you and you sit back and you take it like it's nothing. Go on the offensive for a change. That's the first. Wage warfare on spiritual laziness. The second and the very last thing for this sermon is to keep an eternal perspective, to keep an eternal perspective on non-eternal things. How do you become a good steward of that which God has entrusted to you? How do you do it? You labor to view those things that you've been entrusted with from God's perspective. You see, we look at, and I do this, I do this too, I'm very guilty of this, and so that's why I know I can say this to you, and it's going to find probably some similar root in your heart. We look at everything that we have that God has given us, and you all know the spectrum of things, from time to money to specific material things to spiritual gifts to our children to our spouses, everything that we own. We look at those things, and we start to ask, how can I use, or to use an evangelically term, how can I leverage this thing to make my time here as comfortable and satisfying for me as possible? That's how we look at our things. Now, we will also add the caveat for us in this room. How can I leverage these things to make myself most comfortable within the bounds of maintaining a nice external Christian lifestyle? Because for us, we're not usually out uh, blowing money at, at a pool hall or a prostitute bar. We're not, we're not going that far. We want to maintain some semblance of a Christian lifestyle. But the problem is we've wrapped ourselves in this general Christian veneer. So when people look, they say, yeah, he's doing the things that Christians do. But fundamentally, our worldview and perspective on how we look at our things hasn't really changed all that much. All we've done is eliminate some of the things we're willing to do with our stuff. We've not really changed how we look at it. And so that's why we're always uh, plotting and scheming 
to use the things that we have to try and leverage them for ourselves as much as we can in such a way that it won't really draw attention from the rest of the people of the congregation. We're trying to slip it under the radar. We haven't really changed our mindset when it comes to our things. Most of the time we content ourselves with thinking, if I have less stuff than the pagans around me, then I'm doing it right. That's not true. It's not about, can someone look at your stuff and say, add up the monetary value of it and say, am I spending too much money on stuff? That's part of it. But the issue fundamentally is that you have to view these things the way that God has said to view them. You ought to use them in accordance with God's law. It's no good to have things if you don't view them from God's perspective. So you want an easy test, an easy way to determine whether you've got a temporal or an eternal perspective on these things? Just one question. Real simple. Do you steward them the way that God has commanded? Do you actually steward them the way that God's commanded? Because anytime you don't, anytime you don't, the only reason that you don't is because you have determined in your mind that those things would be best served in a, in a way that you have constructed for yourself and not in accordance with God's law. That's the only reason you ever don't steward your things properly as God has commanded. Now let's get a little bit more specific. Church is a great litmus test here. Because how much of your time, finances, and spiritual companionship and prayers do you give to this body outside of the bare minimum? Take finances, for example. I'm just going to be blunt. There are some people here in this congregation who don't give a dime to the ministry of this assembly. Not a dime. And there are others of you who give in an incredibly sporadic fashion. Now, why is that the case? Because you've not arranged your finances such, in such a way that in following with God's law, God gets his portion off the top, and he, you give him the first fruits of your labor. It's not a priority for you like God's law says it, it should be. Instead, really, your attitude is, well, if I don't happen to blow as much money on worthless stuff as I do normally, and I've got a little bit left over in the bank account, maybe I'll toss a little bit God's way, and that's all of a sudden when the check pops up in the coffer. Right? Now, most of you... Because you don't have an eternal, well, I shouldn't say most of you, but some of you, because you don't have an eternal perspective on your things, you get mad or you get upset or roused a little bit when an Arminian thinks that God has left uh, salvation up to the determinations and the whims of man. But certainly, from your perspective, you think that your finances have been entirely left up to your own whims and wishes. You see, you love the fact that you come here and there's a building. And guess what? There's lights on right now. Therefore, you can see me and that you can hear me because we have amplified sound. You love the fact that you go out there and there's a fellowship meal and that we, we have a pastor who we pay to write sermons for you. You love all that stuff. You just also love that somebody else is sacrificing to make it happen. You really love that too. And you just fly under the radar and you think that nobody is ever going to notice. You don't really give of yourself to make these things happen. Now... I know that we have a lot of good givers in here. A lot of good givers. So you search your own conscience and, and you know before the Lord how these things have been. And again, I, can, I feel comfortable saying these things because you're not paying my salary, right? Paul may feel a little bit more restricted to say these things. I don't know because we pay him to do this work. But you're not paying my salary, so I don't have any problem telling you that some of you need to check your, how you spend your money. Some of you need to check that because numbers is very clear. You may be able to fly under the radar for a time, but your sin will find you out. And if you're abusing your finances, and if you're not giving unto the Lord that which he has required of you, it's going to show eventually. And again, I'm not saying this because I get anything from you. I don't get a dime from anybody in this room. But I am concerned about the fact that for some of you, you're giving... It's not about who gets the giving necessarily so much as it is the fact that your giving is what it is indicates that there's sin in your life and there's problems. 
and that you don't have an organized life, and you've not made an effort to steward your things well, because you blow your money on a bunch of other stuff, right? If the Lord has bought us, again, the Lord doesn't literally reach down and take the money. He's not, he's not a greedy person who's, uh, who's trying to take our money from us just because he's cruel and unusual. No, we ought to joyfully give of these things to the Lord. The Lord loves a cheerful giver. Why? Because it shows that we value the things that he can give in the form of his church more than we value the things that we can buy at Walmart or at the Home Depot or something else. So you need to check these things. You're not stewarding your stuff well if you haven't organized it in such a way that you are able to give God what is due to God's and still have enough left over to care for your own needs. So go back to the budget. Examine these things. Second, time. Finances, now time. Now some of you show up on Sunday, but that's about all the time that you're willing to sacrifice. And this is obvious because it's clear that you don't arrange your time in such a way that you ever have any time to get together with church members throughout the week. Like the book of Acts says, they went from house to house breaking bread together throughout the week. For you, you've got better things to be doing. Now I know that, again, this is, I, I delight in the fact that our congregation probably gets together more than most of the congregations around here. But my litmus test is not based on what East Taylorsville Baptist Church is doing or Hidden Night down the road. Right. My litmus test is based on what the Word of God says. And again, many of you love to get together and praise God for that. But there's some who just seem to never make it happen. So you're not arranging your time. You're not stewarding your time well. Some of you men, you're not working a job on Saturday. But Lord, Lord knows, and we know every week, we're not going to find you participating in this men's discussion of the person of Christ. Now, I know Paul's preached this application like four or five times, hasn't he? That's probably what most of you are thinking in the back of your mind. But the fact that we've come to another text and we've discerned a doctrine, and this is yet another appropriate and relevant application to another text of the Word of God, after as many times as Paul's preached it, ought to say something to us, Right? Do you, I wonder sometimes if some of you men recognize how discouraging it is to others who I know have spent time preparing. They've even looked at, they've spent time looking through their Bibles at relevant scripture texts. They spent time praying and then they show up and men that they were expecting to see there and expecting to hear from, they know they're not out obeying the Lord in terms of working uh, at their job. They know they just don't care enough to be there. They know they just didn't desire, desire to get up. It was too early for them or something. Do you know how discouraging that that is? And the reason that you're doing that is because you don't have an eternal perspective on your time or the church. You're selfish. Again, the point is not to come for the sake of coming. That's not what I'm preaching here. All right? That's what pagans do. They, they, they pinch their incense unto Caesar and they walk away. They're God. When you show up, we want you to be here. But the point is, we want you to come because we want you to use your gifts to edify the rest of us because we actually get something out of that and it brings us joy. Yes, there's no command that says thou shalt come on Saturday morning to the men's group, but the fact that you won't do it shows that you have arranged your time in such a way that your priorities are always going to overshoot what the church's priorities are. You've not given yourself unto the Lord. You've not come unto the local church in that way. If you really have an eternal perspective on these things, nobody's going to have to stand behind the pulpit and poke and prod you until you do it. You'll be like Hannah. When the time comes, you'll bring your sacrifice to Shiloh. You'll be there. Change your perspective on these things. Start with your time and your finances. And I pray that the Lord would reveal other places that I can't see into for some of you. Now, let me close with this. And I wanted to close with a little bit of an encouragement. That God really does seek those who reward, I'm sorry, who diligently seek Him and steward their gifts well. Because in this text, we might be tempted to think that this is the end of the road for Samuel and Hannah and God, that the story is, is now finished because the two are separated. You know, Samuel's over in the tabernacle and Hannah's laboring in obscurity. 
And really, outside of her prayer that we're going to read in chapter 2, we don't hear of Hannah again in the rest of 1 Samuel. She's, she just kind of disappears into obscurity. And if you do the math, she was probably dead by the time that even uh, uh, her son anointed David as king. So she didn't even get to see in this life the full significance of her endurance and her decision to give Samuel unto the Lord. But let's actually take a moment and think through the significance of what she did. What was the significance of it? Samuel does anoint David. But it wasn't just David in the abstract that he anointed. He anointed David's throne from whom one would come, from whom a branch would spring that would save God's people from their sin and that would end the satanic warfare that Hannah herself was beset by her entire life. And it would end the curse of, of the consequences of sin on all this earth, such as barrenness. It's from her, from David's line, would come the one whom Hannah looks forward to in her prayer of faith, the one whom she has her eyes set on. So imagine her experience as a deceased saint worshiping before the altar, as we see in Revelation. And the time comes, and as she's in heaven, she sees the Son of Man ascending into the heavenly places on the clouds. And he's presented before the Ancient of Days, and he takes his seat at the, throne, at the right hand of the throne of the majesty on high. And as she beholds this one who has come to the Ancient of Days, who is given a kingdom and a dominion, she knows the Son that I lent to the Lord anointed this throne that this Christ will inhabit forever. So if you were to ask her, was it worth it? Was it worth it to diligently seek the Lord, the Lord despite affliction and to wage war on her spiritual laziness and to steward and even give up the things that God had given to her? Her answer would be, oh yes. <laughs> oh yes. It was certainly worth it. Because that momentary affliction, that patient endurance has heaped up an eternal weight of glory. And there he sits, right there, the Lord Jesus I lent him to the Lord, she says. And look what God has done with it. Amen. May the Lord give us that same perspective on our things. Let's pray.